before I start, I have one eye on the chat and I see someone says the show always starts late when Jason's hosting. <laughs> it's effed up. I told you my New Year's resolution was to be more on time. Usually we're like 10 minutes late. Today was only five. Okay. We're having a very good spirited discussion in the virtual green room. Right. I have two intellectual titans on the screen with me. We're sitting back here talking a little bit. We lost track of time. So I apologize. I will take full responsibility for my for my errors. Greetings. I am your host, Jason Miles. Welcome to another episode of this is Revolution Podcast for all the returning listeners and subscribers. Thank you so much for coming back. For, to those new to the channel, thank you for taking a little bit of time to watch what we do here. If you enjoy what we're doing here, please make sure you hit a like on your way out. If you really dig it, make sure you hit subscribe. That passive gesture goes a very long way in making sure we can continue to bring you guys this show usually on time. I have a returning person that's going to be joining me. MT will be joining us in the champagne room tonight. But for the main show, I am joined with my co-host, my homie, my dog. You know him as the man of the Mau Mau Hour. Or you know him by his Christian name, the Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. Did you read what Steve wrote in the chat? I'm yeah. reading it now. So. <laughs> uh, for those that are listening to the show in the audio only, Jason, today you look like the main character in a movie that moves out to the countryside with his white wife, and then the Hicks attack y'all. <laughs> Goddamn. <laughs> the one day. The one day I wear this gray sweatshirt and I look like the main character in a Hallmark movie about racism or a movie about racism directed by Jordan Peele. <laughs> it hits you over the head with its message. <sighs> Our topic today, Pascal, is one I'm kind of excited to talk about. Um, when I got this, uh, I got to be a part of this email thread. I felt honored even that I was part of the email thread that our guest was throwing this idea around on. I hit you up right away. I sent this to you and you were like, well, this is going to be a good show. And you came up with some really good questions. So I'm just going to get right to it. Do you find Marxism to be a tool that you can use to organize around, to build cadre in this current moment? If you consider yourself the leftist, do you feel the need to learn Marx? And if so, does it feel like a daunting task? Do certain activist types that proclaim to be Marxists that constantly quote Marx have an accurate analysis of the current moment? Our guest today asked that question. Uh, here's an excerpt from his essay and upcoming podcast on the subject of Marx. A person who repeated, repeatedly quotes Marx and advises reading Marx 
or whichever other long gone icon to make a point about contemporary relations or current prospects, much less about contemporary means or, or aims, will often seem to those he addresses more concerned to get his or her audience to genuflect to Marx or more concerned to demonstrate his or her own allegiance to Marx, excuse me, to those who already elevate Marx than concerned to help anyone to thoughtfully consider for themselves the merits of some relevant observations based on actual evidence and reasoning. So my first point here is that seeking to elevate Marx or to be identified as a supporter of Marx or be deemed a master of Marxism often has more to do with or in any event appears to have more to do with trying to ratify one's own idea, uh, ideological identity and be true to it, whatever that may even mean than it is to do with anything to accomplish something more worldly and worthy based on one's own careful current thinking and eliciting and addressing others careful current thinking, even when the opposite may be true. In short, quoting from the past often masks contemporary communicative poverty and appeals to some dead author's authority, which in turn risks a slip slide toward sectarian conformity, not free creative participation. So in this particular case, embarking on activism, why not dare I say it, take Mark's own advice. Why not let the, quote, dead generations rest in peace? Why not avoid nightmarish mimicry? Why not develop one's own case in one's own words with one's own examples? Regarding delivery, that is. Why not stop borrowing to instead create that is from our guest, Michael Albert, who is the author of over 20 books. His last was No Bosses, which he actually came on this show and talked about a few years ago. Please check that out. It's currently available on Zero Books. He's the founder of Z Magazine. He's a teacher and an activist and a friend to this show. Please give a warm TIR welcome for Michael Albert. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> you ready? <laughs> uh, Michael, go go ahead, Pascal. Welcome to the show, and thank you very much for taking this opportunity to come on and talk to us about your thoughts about something that's very important, quite honestly, and very important for uh, Something that I think that we all care about, and what that is, is people who are trying to change the world to make it a better place, and uh, how they go about doing so. And in reading your 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 words, your uh, culmination of paragraphs, one of the things that came to mind first struck me was a notion that often arises from questions on this subject matter, is that is. Why does it take so much intellectual commitment to rigorously take left or Marxist positions in the first place? You always hear how it, it takes so much for people to be a leftist, yet right-wingers just spew nonsense all the time. What do you think, why do you think the intellectual assumptions that churn, do you think that the intellectual assumptions churn people off and that the requirement of that heavy lifting is a burden to the effective growth of left thought overall 
Yes, but I'd characterize it, I think, a little bit differently. Am, am I uh, coming through? Oh, we can hear you loud and clear. Okay, good. Okay. Um, you know, suppose you're trying to communicate some area of concern or some conceptual framework. Sometimes it requires and is a little bit difficult. Um, sometimes let's call the difficulty that it is this much. Then you lay on a, a approach and words and, and um, a style and vocabulary and it grows to this much. That's a problem. That's a serious problem because that's asking people to spend a lot of extra time um, working harder than they should have to work. But then there's another dimension, which is sometimes the thing that you're trying to become familiar with and become able to utilize um, isn't all that great, that it has problems. And then again, you're spending a whole lot of time becoming facile at something that you don't, in fact, ultimately make that much use of. And the part you do make use of, you could have become uh, effective with very quickly. In my own case, honestly, uh, I learned Marxism as a summary um, during a period of tumultuous demonstrations in you know, the 60s. And a friend, I asked him, because he was in economics, can you, can you give me lessons in this? I, I don't know it yet. Uh, I don't understand it yet. And he did. And it took a couple of hours. And I suspect, now this might mean that I'm a, a fool and that I'm not using Marxism well. We can see about that or, or the valid insights of Marxism well. But it took about two hours. And what I understood from that is what I use most of the time, including, you know, writing a book that was called Unorthodox Marxism. That was me trying to keep the label by altering its meaning, I think is what we were doing. Um, anyway, the, the article that you referred to had three parts in some sense. Um, the first part was about what you just raised. Mm -hmm. uh, is it unnecessarily, is, is the valid element of it made unnecessarily complex and obscure? And I would say the answer is yes. And then the next question is, or the next element was, um, is it, does it have, does the substance as compared to the delivery have problems? And my answer to that also was yes. And the two that I emphasized were um, what's called economism by some people and a problem in understanding class relations and uh, the classes that exist and that can become ruling classes. And, you know, uh, throughout the article, I was basically asking, is this right or is this wrong? Um, and if it's right, don't we need to be doing something? And there was a part of the article about what we might need to be doing. Um, uh, this, 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 uh, I'm sorry, dude, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry. I'll shut up. No, it's fine. Uh, go ahead. Uh, Pascal has another question that he wrote that I need him to ask himself because it's hilarious. Because it's what? Hilarious. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Do you think that the way the current left uses Marxism turns into a Dungeons and Dragons nerd club for PMC adjacent intellectuals instead of solutions <laughs> class people? 
Okay, well, I, I have to... <laughs> I have to cop to the fact that I never played Dungeons and Dragons, but I can guess what you mean. Um, sort of, you know, I, I think... Look, what, what are, what's really valid? What's really valid is class matters. There are capitalists. There are workers. Um, the impact of production matters. We have to understand those things to be able to address certain parts, not all, certain parts of what's going on in the world. Those are all valid observations. And much of the specifics that people put into doing that are really insightful and necessary uh, but yeah i think i think it's it's often you know postmodernism. Mm. there was some there were some uh, uh valid points but there was a lot of verbiage that surrounded and obscured the valid points instead of really putting them across and as i experienced it I felt that a lot of that was posturing. A lot of that was to make it seem like uh, people were super smart and they weren't. And, uh, you know, you, sh you should never use language and formulations that are more than what is needed to convey uh, the ideas that you wish to convey. Uh, for example, dialectics. What the heck is dialectics? Mm -hmm. What is it? Mm -hmm. You know, what the hell? There's two questions. There's, is it something? And then after that question, there's the question, okay, do you need it for anything? Uh, ask somebody who is an advocate of the importance of becoming familiar with and versed in and facile with dialectics what he needed or she needed dialectics in order to know that he or she could not have known without it right in other words if i have to master this thing if i have to read all this stuff which is so obscure that i can't even finish a sentence much less paragraphs call me stupid okay but then tell me what your study of dialectics enabled you to understand enabled you to conceive or to envision that helps your organizing mm. and that you wouldn't have and that you wouldn't have been able to do without ever having read a, read a word about it and the same thing goes almost as strongly not quite for this thing called historical materialism uh but there uh there's another problem which is some of what you learn and what you become facile with with historical materialism not only doesn't help you it hurts you, or so I would think, and so I wrote in the essay. How would you say it hurts you, historical materialism? Uh, well, I think I think when normal human beings utilize uh, this thing called historical materialism, they tend to become economistic. What does that word mean? Some people think it means that I'm saying, if I say Marxism is economistic, they think I'm saying everybody who's a Marxist pays attention only to economics. Well, okay, if I was saying that, I'd be an idiot because 
It's not the case. Obviously, it's obviously not the case. Marxists pay attention to all manner of things, racism, sexism, and so on. So it doesn't mean that. So does it mean that they give unduly extra attention to economics than they give to, say, patriarchy or racism or authoritarianism? Well, sometimes it certainly means that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Some Marxists give more attention to racism, some, et cetera. I think what it does mean is that Marxists are told by the tradition, when you pay attention to racism, when you pay attention to sexism, when you pay attention to authoritarianism, do it with the, the, your eyes on economics. Pay attention to how those other sides of life or spheres of life impact economics and how economics impacts them. But it doesn't say the, the, uh, the other domains, so feminism, anti-racism, or I like to call it intercommunalism, or anti-authoritarianism, or Marxism, that they have concepts and insights that bear on their part of life that are fundamental just like the ones that economics has that are fundamental. And so it narrows the perspective unduly. And it's my experience is that when times become more crisis, you know, a crisis dynamic and urgency, when times become more urgent and organizing becomes um, accurate uh, 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 on our minds, the tradition of Marxism, uh, even worse, the tradition of Marxism-Leninism, but the tradition um, weighs on us and pressures us and uh, starts to generate an economistic focus. So that's one problem that I have with the substance, not the style. The, in other words, the making it more complex than it needs to be, style. Anything can have that. Um, and the the other the other problem is a substantive problem that it uh, it narrows our attention span and it it has us see sexuality, gender, race, religion, all these things through an economics lens, more for some people than for others. But we don't need to do that. we could we could have underlying concepts that fight against that tendency and that tendency is all the more um uh concerning because of course we live in a society that tends to cause us all to have racial and gender and sexual and other biases um which need to be combated by our concepts not aggravated by them uh i think this problem i should say just to be clear so people don't run out of the room <laughs> that <laughs> that most marxists actually agree on this they actually see the need to add dimensions to marxism and are trying to do so this has been going on for decades the tradition sort of fights it a little bit but but most activists and organizers do pay attention and do try to see the fundamental insights that come from those other domains of life. There's another problem with Marxism that has to do with economics, and that one I think is much more damning ultimately. Go ahead, Pascal. So you find the problem you find it problematic that Marxism 
or some Marxists would posit that the ultimate motivating factor behind racial social strife are conflicts over material realities between various classes of individuals over time. And that yeah. they produce the antagonisms that play out over time into what becomes politics, culture, uh, society, and everything else. Yeah, so um, to put you, what you're saying in a less clear, more obtuse manner, which is the way it's usually put, so I commend you putting it the way you put it, um, you know, there's this economic fundamental basement, uh, a base, and there's a lot of other stuff, uh, culture, family, community, etc. And that economic base sort of impacts the rest and contours the rest and affects the rest. Uh, well, I think that's true. But I think what makes it false is when you say, not you, but when someone says that happens and the reverse doesn't happen. That is, there's the, the dynamics between genders and around family and so on, they don't have that same importance. They don't radiate influences throughout society. Same for racism. And the, 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 the impact is from economy, not from the, the more, basic, more basic to race, racial underpinnings or gender underpinnings and so on. So if the Marxist says, yeah, but what we produce is essential for life, that's true. It's also true that being born is essential for life, that living in a, in a, in a living unit and being nurtured and cared for is essential to life. There's nothing that you can say that can't be said about other domains. I think community, the, the forging of relationships among people, holidays, language, etc., is fundamental. These other spheres of life, polity and, and uh, social arrangements, political arrangements, these things are also central to society. And if we're going to have a movement, I think, that's going to overcome all this, then it needs to have concepts that don't say one approach to struggle is, is predominant. And we should organize, understand the rest in terms of that one. It seems to me far more the case that, yes, we should understand racial struggle or religious struggle or gender struggle or sexual struggle, we should see that there's an economic impact and an economic part. But we should also see that in those, that in the economy, the, the dynamics that go on uh, reflect influences from those other spheres, right? The kinship sphere and family and gender and the racial and ethnic and religious, the community sphere of life and the polity. And so it goes both ways. It isn't some kind of one-way causality. And trying to prioritize it, it, it accomplishes nothing except, you know, sort of creating a false fight, a false but, argument. But one of the ways that I would somewhat push back here is that we do have the time frame of history. And one of the things that I think there is a value in 
historical materialism, I, I know you might have a problem with the concept of dialectical materialism, is that we can look at what have been the material motivations of a time that have brought us through historical moments. And there are epochs, periods, there are high points, low points of time and history, conflicts in time and space, rises of empires, falls of empires, industrial revolutions, technological advancements, changes of gender norms over societies over time, changes of racial paradigms. These things all have happened within the spaces of physical realities that have largely been influenced by certain forces that have happened within a 500 to 2,000 year period of time for a variety of reasons. All right. And, and sure. And, and you notice I didn't say, um, uh, let's take a radical feminist, really radical feminist position and say, well, okay, the, the, the base is family and kinship. Without that, we have nothing. Without that, we don't have a society, without et cetera. And it is pushing everything else. I didn't say that. What I said is that each are pushing. Each are um, having a fundamental impact on society. And each are helping define the rest. If you look in a factory and you see class relations, well, uh, we should get to the fact that I think that we see those wrong. But okay, so you look in the factory and you see class relations. You see groups of people whose situation causes them to act in situations similarly to have shared interests and so on. What if a feminist looks in a factory and says, I see uh, mothers and fathers. I see sexism and misogyny. I see that people's roles include a kinship dimension, let's call it. And what if somebody else comes along and looks in the factory, looks in the workplace, looks in the economy, and sees racial struggle and racial dimensions? They're right. There's no point arguing about it in my mind. And there's no point in trying to, it's not necessary to say, I believe um, uh, um, economics is predominant in order to say economics is very, very important, profoundly important. And where it's important, we should understand it. Fine. What's the point of saying we have to march behind a banner that says class is what matters view all other struggles insofar as they affect class. That's really the, the, the message. Why can't we say there are a lot of, there are a few things that are profoundly important, class, community or race, religion, etc., kinship and power, authority, what the anarchists would say. And we need to view each of those struggles with an eye toward how the other impacts them and how they impact the other. I think that's happening in Marxism. That's why you get Marxist feminism and you get um, racialized capitalism and you get anarcho-Marxism or Marxist. It, they're trying to, and this has been going on for a long time now. People are trying to find some way to, to have the benefits of both. And I think that's a good, healthy thing. But when I did that, Decades ago, um, many decades ago, 
I, you know, we we had this feeling very early on um, that there was something wrong with this approach to trying to find, you know, the goat of areas of life, you know, and and so um, this this sort of holistic approach began to emerge. Um, and I think it's been progressing. Uh, it was like intersectionality before intersectionality, and it included economy, whereas intersectionality often seems to leave out economy. I, I've never been able to understand why, but um, so, you know, it, it's a, but I hope we'll get to what ultimately matters more, because when we did that, and we sort of thought, well, how do we get a framework, an intellectual framework, which will cause us to see all those dimensions and not to argue about which is most important, but to act on their importance? And so we looked at feminism and we thought, pretty good, right? Not not bad. Um, it's going to get better over time, but okay. Okay with anti-racism and okay with anarchism. We looked at Marxism and we said, hold on a minute. There's a problem here. The others are on the road to a powerful framework. Marxism has lots of powerful insights, but it has some things that are off the road to having a powerful intellectual framework that in fact interfere with it. And that's the second part of that article, the bigger part. And that's about, um, does Marx's understanding well in capitalism for example, uh, there are people who own the means of production and there are people who own only their ability to do work. And those are the two classes and they clash. And so far it's true. And it's, it's important that that be understood, absolutely. But it misses something. It misses a class that's between labor and capital. And you even referred to it in your, in your funny question. Um, when you, I believe I heard you say the PMC, uh, you know, well, PMC is, stands for professional managerial class, and it came from Barbara Ehrenreich. Um, something very similar to it existed way back in anarchism. Um, it's trying to identify that there's something else in the class structure, not just capitalists and workers. Um, the writing partner I had at the time, Robin Hanel and I, um, were part of a book that was the first big presentation in some ways of the PMC framework that was in an article by Barbara and John Ehrenreich. People should look it up. It's very good. Um, and the book was called Between Labor and Capital. It was a collection. And the contention was, yes, ownership relations are important, but they are not solely important. The division of labor is also important. And the division of labor creates a situation wherein there's owners and there are employees who don't own means of production. But among those employees, some have overwhelmingly empowering tasks. Some have overwhelmingly disempowering tasks. And the former dominate the latter. They, their situations, we can talk about what kind of a job is empowering, but their situations um, that 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 give them the ability to dominate meetings, to make decisions, to implement, et cetera. Whereas the, and it's about 20% uh, 
PMC, or I call it the coordinator class, because it's not just professionals and managers. Um, and, and then there's the working class below that. Now, if that's true, there isn't only a Marxist problem about delivery, about making it unnecessarily obscure. There's a Marxist problem about class analysis. And that would be very concerning. I, you know, how can anybody not say that would be very concerning if it matters? Well, I mean, we can talk about that. The, 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 the biggest piece of evidence that it matters is that you can overthrow the owners, you can get rid of the owning class, and still have a class-divided society in which the coordinator class is the new ruling class. When they say out with the old boss, in with the new boss, the new boss isn't a thug, isn't just a bad person or something like that. It's a whole class, the coordinator class. How, um, uh, how would you define this coordinator class? Okay, the the coordinator class. How would you define any group such that you want to pay special attention to that group? Mm-hmm. Right. You'd have to make a case that the group. For instance, men and women, gays and straights, owners and those who don't own. You'd have to make a case that the group, by virtue of its position, and if we're talking class, we're saying its position in the economy. If we were talking kinship, we'd say its position in the the reproduction and the nurturance of family and so on. But class now. So its position in the economy causes it to be to have a a a big difference from the other people in the economy and that that big difference gives them a set of contrary interests and capacities. Mm -hmm. We can see that between owners and workers, clearly, right? But it's also true for doctors, lawyers, engineers, accountants, um, and people who's a little less directly an economic identification, big stars, um, certain big, you know, people who by virtue of their position are empowered. Mm. They, they have access to decision-making levers day to day. They have skills that their position conveys to them. They have knowledge that their position conveys to them. Mm. That, in other words, capitalism conveys flat out power from ownership. This stuff can pay, conveys power by causing this constituency, let's call it, to become a class which has a monopoly on empowering circumstances in the economy. And then the working class becomes those employees who don't own means of production, they're not capitalists, and who don't have empowering work, who overwhelmingly do disempowering work. And... You know, the showstopper of this argument is that the Soviet system, the, you know, the, the Soviet Union's system um, got rid of owners, it got rid of capitalists, but it sure as hell wasn't classless. It was, it had a ruling class and the ruling class was the coordinator class. It also had a dictatorial authoritarian political system because politics matters. Um, why why you know, can't why can't the coordinated class be be defined as what it was traditionally defined? What was the petite bourgeoisie? Because it, that doesn't tell us anything. It, it doesn't say. I'm not saying these people are small owners, right? Or they own less. 
I mean, that is a phenomenon. But I'm saying something quite different. I'm saying the accountant, the lawyer, the engineer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, were, were by virtue of their position, um, put above workers below and below owners above. I once taught in prison, and I uh, this was as this was percolating, and um, I, I, I the reason I could do this I I don't know it was in Massachusetts but they let me teach whatever I want, and so I taught a course on uh, contemporary society and um, revolutionary vision, literally, and when I talked about capitalists, the the the. The students, I mean, these are grown adults, right? The, the students still um, were involved. They understood, but they were not particularly passionate. In other words, they didn't, it didn't arouse a whole lot of passion in the room. And um, when I talked about this other group, the room went berserk. And it went berserk because they all have experience with doctors and with professors and with um hopefully not myself in that case and with uh, uh lawyers and and on and on judges and they hate these people they were hostile to these people and i asked them how do you know who's who and they said you know when you're walking down the street and they explained it by using a racial analogy they said when you're walking down the street and there's a white person walking down the street and there's a black person walking down the street, this might not hold anymore. But generally speaking, they would say the black person knows to go around the white person, not vice versa. And they said, when we're walking down the street, we know who's in this group that we're loosely talking about, hadn't named it yet. We know who's in it. They walk differently than us. They talk differently than us. They dress differently than us. Their whole manner is different than ours, and we know we're supposed to go around. And, you know, I'm not saying everybody does go around them, thank God, but, but the differences between, if you want to call it the PMC, I'm going to call it the coordinator class, and the working class go into all sides of life. Name a sport, some sports that people watch, everybody watches um things have changed um but there are other sports that are pmc sports or coordinator class sports overwhelmingly and then some that are more working class sports and there's music country music that's working class and classical music that's that's not it's not because of anything in the way people hear music it's because of the roles that we play and the expectations that emerge from us and so in a workplace it's a little like the, the election. In the election, 50, the US presidential election, 50% don't vote. And lots of those who vote, vote on very narrow issues. Um, in, in a workplace, the, the, the workforce, the bulk of it doesn't even think about controlling the workplace, making decisions, right? They would almost feel the 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 statement that they should do that to be oppressive because they would feel it was trying to trick them into just doing more well what what about, about what about a guy who's right. a public defender who's an attorney who makes barely thirty thousand dollars a year living in south florida wait, wait, I, 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 
I, I didn't get some of that. What about the guy, who, guy who was like a public defender who's an attorney? He barely okay. makes $40,000 living in South Florida in a hovel. He's a lawyer. <laughs> okay. And, and what about the small capitalist? Or what about Angles, who's a capitalist? You know, so you, you obviously, every, every, no, I wouldn't. Uh, uh, at the bottom of many of these job categories, they're arguably working class. Same thing for public school teachers, right? Public school teachers aren't really, I don't think, there's, there's an overlap. That happens with all kinds of, of concepts. For instance, um, owners and workers. Workers buy some stock, owners own less. You know, there's an edge. There's a, and that happens here too. Absolutely. So, um, it, it's, it's what you say is true, but it's not true of a tenured professor, particularly a tenured professor at a, you know, a, a big school. It's not true of a, a law firm that is a big law firm and has lawyers, although they treat to, to become a capitalist. You just have to inherit property or much less often you have to somehow accumulate enough so that you're really in that ownership class. How do you become a, a coordinator class person? Well, it's partly degrees. It's partly accreditation, you know, credentials, but it's also partly learning how to conduct yourself. I mean, really, in other words, um, Harvard is a finishing school. The reason you pay a lot of money to go to Harvard isn't really for education. It's to learn how to conduct yourself. It's to walk the corridors and see paintings on the wall. It's to, it, there's a gap and working people understand and see that gap. This plays a role, a huge role, I think. Now, you know, people are going to disagree with all of this. Um, people, it plays a huge role in Trump's success. In and it wasn't just Trump. So a long time ago, Spiro Agnew was vice president, mm -hmm. and he used to attack the left. And he would attack the left. I think he called us bullet-headed intellectuals. In other words, sort of arrogant, um, highly educated, etc. He was identifying the left with the coordinator class or the PMC in order to rally working class people against the left it was very effective and it, it was worked, very right? early yeah it did work and that's what trump does trump i mean a lot of people do this but um instead of calling trump a, uh, an idiot we should say that he's very effective at some things uh some ugly things and so why would somebody be so upset with Hillary Clinton's style and manner, rightly so, they should be upset, and but so upset at it, and so upset at being called a basket of deplorables, that they then incredibly support a billionaire, a capitalist, a capitalist who only moderately um, hides his capitalist inclinations. The fact that he is going to pursue those interests. And nonetheless, they were so upset at the coordinator class ruler that they 
become attracted to this other guy, and they become attracted to the fact that he isn't as polished as Clinton, that he, you know, that he seems like somebody you could go have a beer with, and he tries to be funny, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this stuff might not seem like it matters, but it does, because for a lot of the working class, the worst nightmare isn't the capitalist. They've never met a capitalist. They've never even seen a capitalist, mm. right? It's a long distance, from their point of view, domination. But the manager on the floor of the workplace and the accountant and the lawyer and the doctor and their snotty attitude and their looking down basket of deplorables and their, you know, that they feel every day. And the left, you know, it's understandable. I'm not saying we should say that everybody who is by their definition coordinator class is for that reason the enemy. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that when we orient ourselves toward appealing to graduates of Yale instead of working people, we're making a very, very, very serious mistake. And we do do that. Well, and uh, then we pay for it. I want to make sure we, we stay on track. And I, I I will apologize for maybe getting us a little off track with the, with the PMC question. There is nothing no, right. that people that watch these shows get more heated about. Um, I could hear uh, sphincters pucker uh, throughout the Internet. <laughs> and we mentioned PMC. Wait, Heated in what way? Um, definitions, what people think the PMC is, um, everybody's got to be right. I don't really try to get too deep into those discussions. Um, critiquing Aaron Reich and then definitely trying to critique uh, people like Catherine Liu, who wrote, a, I think, a, a pretty cool book um, about the PMC. Like five, six Can you ago. tell me what the critique is? Of, of the PMC? No, if it's of the PMC, I'm critical. Of, you know, if it's of the idea that there is a PMC or a coordinator if, class, if there is like one, if there is one, who's is actually an, in it? Yeah. Is it an adequate leftist yeah. definition yeah. to be? It's it's all almost all of it is inter left mind wrestling. Over nomenclature, over over the uh, you know whether or not it's satisfactory enough, does it fulfill the purpose? In other words, nonsense, frankly. I, I yeah, we we try not to get too much into it, and every time we have Catherine Lou on the show, someone definitely has some sort of even if she's not even talking about virtue orders. Thank you, Sean Moon, for the, the name of the book. But Pascal, uh, you have a question <laughs> that is going to get us out of this PMC talk for five seconds. Oh, okay. Number three. Yes. Has the post-1960s left retreat into academia been so consequent that such subject matters of proper application of Marxist theory have forever relegated this discipline to the faculty lounge? Ooh. Um, yes and no. I mean, how can I... In other words... 
I was part of the 60s left, and I'm not in the faculty lounge. I'm not even on the campus. I'm not, you know, I've never, um, but I have friends who have. And um, one of them is really good and, and speaks plain English and is upset at the same things you're upset at. Um, Noam, if you ever had a chance to talk to Chomsky, I mean, now he's in, he's not just in a faculty lounge. He's internationally famous as an intellectual. Mm-hmm. Um, on the same time, he hates it. You know, he, he hates, um, you know, I don't think he ever went to a Harvard gathering meeting that he's, you know, supposed to go to. And uh, faculty meetings were the worst part of his life, et cetera. So the, the, the masquerade the the turning of what you do research or writing or whatever it is into something that appears to be much harder than it really is is repulsive and i do think that lots of people have in fact done that i mean that's why that that question the question i said about dialectics what does it enable you to understand that you couldn't understand without it because it's admitted, it's it's clearly difficult. I I don't understand it. Noam doesn't understand it. Noam would often say to me, "What the hell is dialectics? What are they talking about?" So, um, so, so for instance, you could ask the same question about the coordinator class. After all, that's a that's a made up word. Does it refer to something which enables us to understand something and clues us into something and and focuses on something? that we need to pay attention to, which we don't pay attention to if we don't have that concept. And I can answer that question. I think, yes, it does. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think, yes, it does. It clues us into the fact that, for just one example, if we're going to create a post-capitalist economy, we better not have in it the corporate division of labor, which all of them have had. We better not have in it the 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 way of organizing work which gives about a fifth of all employees empowering work and four fifths disempowering work because if we do that our post-capitalist vision against our desires by virtue of the of the institutional choice will have a ruling class that's analogous to saying if we seek freedom and justice and equity, but we have an owning class, we're not going to get freedom, justice, and equity. That's true, too. That's why you have to deal with these things. Um, and, you know, I don't, I'm not sure. Uh, what Marxism has done is, uh, one a uh, good thing that it has done is it has pushed the discussion of economics further. Mm -hmm. A, a feminist might say if you have in a new society women mothering and men fathering those roles the fact that you want no misogyny and no sexism and full equality et cetera et cetera is doesn't matter you've you've adopted an institution which is going to prevent that one of the most important things for not the the most important who knows what's most important one of the most important things for a revolutionary to do is to understand what the goal is 
what it is you're trying to attain. So in the world of the, in the realm of the economy, classlessness, but that means getting rid of ownership. And it also means getting rid of the corporate division of labor in the realm of kinship. It means feminism. It means an end to misogyny and sexism. And that may very well mean getting rid of women mothering and men fathering. Well, Pascal, do you have any mothering to do? Who's DV Epps? Uh, I don't know. Uh, oh, I'm seeing. I'm, oh, see, you read. You can't read the chat. You can't read the chat. Getting into the chat. You can't read the chat. You can't read it. Why not? Why not? Because it, there's nothing. Look, even if someone's telling you you're great, there's always someone telling you to go f off. And uh, you, I you mistake me. I want to find the people who are. I don't care <laughs> you I'm great. Um, the thing that I'm looking at it, and it seems like people are most hot and bothered. Yeah, one of from the PMC discourse. Yeah, yeah. And so, let, why might that be? Mm. In other words, that's an important question. In other words, why is somebody made upset by that? Suppose I was um, talking about owners, and we had a whole bunch of owners chatting they'd be upset mm. and they'd be upset about that. They'd be upset about that more than anything, right? Anything else. Okay. So one possibility is that people are upset about, um, are upset about what I'm saying about the coordinator class because they just think it's wrong and they, and they have some reasoned basis for thinking it's wrong. They have some reasoned basis for thinking that the, uh, accountants and engineers aren't in a different class than the assembly workers. Um, okay, fine. But I think there's a different reason why somebody might be upset. And it might be because they, they feel revolutionary. They feel like they're against the system and they want a better system. And they feel like I'm saying, yeah, but you're in the coordinator class. So that's all phony. I'm not saying that, right? I'm not saying that. Angles believed in what he said about owners, but he was an owner. Um, Chomsky's in the coordinator class, right? So is pretty much most people who write on the left, not all by any means, regrettably way too many. And most of them, feel totally sincerely that they want a whole new system. What I'm talking about is institutions, not individuals. I'm talking about a corporate division of labor. I'm talking about taking our work and organizing it in such a way that this person does only effectively disempowering tasks. They do the same thing over and over. They do, they're, they're mostly isolated from other people on the, on the job. They don't create policy. They don't, they're not accessing the levers of power. They go to work, they do stuff, and they go home. And they don't, it's not something that they are controlling, managing. But another set of people over here have jobs that give them information instead of taking information away from them over here. 
that give them access to levers of power instead of taking levers of power away from them, that give them confidence instead of taking confidence away, and so on. And these two things are two classes. And it's no accident that this class rises in certain settings, even inside the left. It's no accident. We have a super chat on the screen. Thank you very much, JB. Uh, Pascal, I just finished W.E. Du Bois's uh, An American Political Thought, Fabianism and the Color Line. That book seriously elevated my understanding of the world. Thank you for the recommendation. Once again, another good book from the Pascal Robert book list, which you cannot find anywhere because it is a secret book list that we have here at TIR. We have asked Pascal numerous times for his book list and every time he scoffs at us and then just give you a book, let's give you a book a month and then that, that that fulfills the job the, see again that's what happens when you hire black people <laughs> uh, we have another super chat that uh someone has been really uh sean moon thank you very much for the super chat sean moon but i Please ask Albert about the overthrow of Libya by NATO. Sean Moon believes that you are a supporter of NATO. And uh, seriously? Yes. Is it serious? Yes. Why does he believe that? I think he Wikipedia something. What? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I, there, there, Sean. I, I, can, I can be criticized for various things, but. <laughs> Certainly not being a supporter of NATO. <laughs> and and you uh, you you and didn't. let me tell you an interesting story. Sure. I, I go a lot of places and speak, right? So I, <laughs> I speak on a lot of places in Europe during um, during the the period of uh, you know U.S. militarism in it was in Iraq in this case. Um, I and it was after 9/11, and uh, I would give speeches over there and. One of the first questions I got asked in most places, mm-hmm. honestly, was, and I'm not making this up, why aren't you in jail? No. Oh. And I would say, what? <laughs> so I don't, you know, usually I can sort of answer a question. I had no idea what he was talking about. So I asked him and he said, well, the stuff you've said, you are so militant and so aggressive about American militarism and about the whole American society we don't hear that kind of thing over here. And I said, well, I can't speak to what you hear, but um, the United States is a weird place, um, or it has been until recently a weird place in which uh, people can in fact speak their minds, including the kinds of things that I'm saying. Um, uh, Part of the reason for that is that the people who get away with that are coordinator class. It's much harder for a working class person, much less a working class black person, Mm. to speak the way I speak and get away with it. Um, I don't know. uh, So I say say a lot of -of out-of-pocket shit. (laughs) I go out of my way. If I haven't pissed off a white person, Maybe and I'm talking about might... pissing off the, the authorities, but I got yeah, it's usually white people. I got to ask you a question, right? Okay. Does all of that, does a laugh track help? 
Is that good for the audience? Have you ever asked? I uh, no, no, uh, uh-uh. uh. Well, if it's unless you're enjoying it, I am my ass off. It's purely, purely self. It's self it, look, look, purely self enjoyment. Look, if I okay, well then I can't, then I can't take issue with you it. You can't take. But I can't. Yeah. Im, I can't imagine mm-hmm. that that the audience really likes it. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm an old guy. Mm-hmm. When that thing goes off in my ears, mm-hmm. I'm what? <laughs> I just have to ask. <laughs> Not no. your left, the, you know, the machine. Yeah, you know, yeah, seriously. Yeah, I don't, I don't. If if I had 25 emails that said, fuck off with the laugh track, I would. You keep doing it. I would, would do it. Like Captain Crunch. You, you, <laughs> I need you to understand something. I make the music for this show. And every week, someone sends a message. I fucking hate the intro music to this show. What's with that fucking music? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I can understand that. But but notice that's only intro yeah. music. I, look, I make the outro it's music. I make. It, there's yeah, always. You laugh while doing it. There, the, yeah. There's I'm, always. Fine with me. I, okay. There is always a complaint. It. Look, there is always a complaint. There's always a complaint. There's always, and I can't, I can't solve all the, some things I can't, some, hey, can you not say blah, blah, blah? Sure. That's fair. But the laugh track stays and this stays. We're coming for you. All right. What, what is Calhounist Leninism? (laughs) I might, I I might have to defer to you on that one. Cal, well, Calhounist Leninism, Calhounist Leninism, okay. I actually know what this is. I saw it. I saw it over there. Yeah. I actually know what this is. is Calhounist Leninism is a creation of the modern age, where there is a belief that there is a fusion between Southern segregationists and left-wing Marxoids to create a kind of new left-right, right-left alliance, if you will. Left rightism. Oh. That um, okay. is filling a void. Okay. Um notice how real do I think it is? I don't think it's that real. Uh, yeah, I don't I, I, I don't know. But, um <laughs> imagine somebody said imagine somebody said Albert is a Calhounist Leninist because because it gives a reason. Because he is critical of the coordinator class, you know, the the, the PMC. PMC, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. The, I really don't like that. because, But anyway, the coordinator class, the PMC, he's critical of the PMC as becoming a possible ruling class. And he doesn't want that. And neither does Trump. Or at least he says he doesn't want it. He does. He says he doesn't. So there's an alliance between somebody might say the Albert type leftist mm-hmm. and the Trump type rightist. Okay, now this person needs to think more clearly, but that doesn't mean that he needs to read a book on dialectics, which isn't going to help him a whit. So right? if I got you this shirt, you're not going to wear it, is what you're telling me. You're not going to wear this around your. your uh, I I I I'd have to think long and hard before I didn't wear it. 
I think Jean Bajlan is lurking in the chat who is a part of the show because that's the only person in the world I could think that would bring that up because he's the one that that uh, that made that that thing on the on the now, show. You, you have some comedians over here. We do. Jefferson Davis, Jefferson Davis, Angela Davis. Who can really tell the difference? <laughs> and then somebody asks, is dialectics really that complicated? Well, if it isn't that complicated, I'm an idiot. Gnome's an idiot. And why are there so many books about it? If it's if it's straightforward. But there's only one book about Dianetics. <laughs> That's what you get. Don't ever don't ever tempt me to pull out the laugh track. We have another super chat and then we have to then Wait a minute. Have, wait oh minute. shit. Okay. There. Uh, Albert is an expert non-Marxist. I, mean, uh, I, I think an ex- I, it disappeared, but I think it was an expert at not understanding Marxism. Remember I said we wrote a book uh, called Unorthodox Marxism? Mm-hmm. And this, this was back in, uh, I don't know, 79, maybe 83, in around there. And so the first two chapters presented Marxism. Um, And then came things that we thought were counterproductive or outright wrong or whatever. And then came sort of what an unorthodox Marxist would be. And the essay that you started off with Mm -hmm. sort of follows that line also, because near the in the end of it, it says, well, what would a Marxist trying to correct these problems do? What, what, what would be their views? And that was sort of the unorthodox Marxism, because we were trying to keep the name Marxist for ourselves. Interestingly, that book was used in a number of Marxist classes. And it was this was probably, I think, maybe the highest compliment I've ever sort of felt. It was used to teach Marxism. The professors would use the first two chapters as a succinct, clear, compelling presentation of Marxism. And then they would not bother to read the rest. They would assign only that. Um, so apparently we understood it well enough for what we wrote about what it was to be used in classes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the teacher somehow knew that all of the concerns we had were worthless, so we didn't have to assign those. Um, I don't know, maybe that doesn't doesn't resonate with your audience or with you. But to me, it really does say something. It's sort of, we most people want to hear a discussion that says what they believe, mm-hmm. you know, that that ratifies their beliefs, their long-held identifications and commitments. To me, that's mostly a waste of time. I want to hear criticism. I want to hear what's wrong with what I have to say. Not, you know, why? So you can go further, so you can get better. The fact that Marxism has been in the driver's seat for so fucking long, Despite the fact that no Marxist movement has ever created a society that is what most people on the left are desiring. They haven't ended racism. They haven't ended sexism. They haven't rendered authoritarianism. They've arguably made some of those worse. And they haven't ended class. They've you know, created classlessness. So with that tr- track record of practice, we should be trying to find some explanation. And the explanation isn't just bad people. 
Just like the explanation for capitalism isn't Trump. It's not bad people. It's institutions and concepts that ratify those institutions. Marx said, when you hear an ideology, there's an echo. Marx said, when you hear an ideology mm-hmm. and you're trying to assess it, you don't listen. He was a very smart guy, by the way. I don't think he was a dummy by any means. You know, he, he said, when you hear an ideology and you're trying to evaluate it, you don't listen to what the what to what the ideology to what the set of concepts says about itself and you don't look at just what it identifies you look to see what it leaves out you look to see what it underemphasizes you look to see what it rationalizes even and so what i'm saying now i'll piss everybody off what i'm saying is i can't leave you out there by yourself right pissing people off i gotta join you so it's real um what it what it real what it what that would say is what i think is the case there are plenty of marxists and marxist leninists who i admire respect and you know like um you know whatever you want to say and um but marxism leninism as an ideology mm-hmm. is the ideology of the coordinator class not the working class mm. it elevates the coordinator class Ooh. to power not the working class oh my and it's goodness. certainly not a, i told you i'd piss some people off oh my goodness and, michael albert is coming for all of you, we coming for you. <laughs> jesus jesus <laughs> it, it now what does that say does that say i think every marxist leninist wants to put coordinators in command no it doesn't look i don't think that every if bernie sanders Mm -hmm. um uh i you know i don't know that this is true none of us probably do but let's say he believes private ownership is essential to have a functioning economy let's say he believes that does that mean that and and i say having private ownership means you're going to have Capitalism means you're going to have exploitation, means you're going to have alienation, et cetera, et cetera. So if I say the latter, does that mean I think Bernie Sanders, if what I said was hypothetically true of him is true of him, doesn't want alienation, wants exploitation? No, it doesn't mean that. Mm -hmm. It means only that he is supporting wrongheadedly an institution that yields those outcomes. There are probably, I venture to guess, just like there are owners or advocates of ownership who, in fact, want the, 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 you know, the trampling of working people, there are probably advocates of uh, Marxism, Leninism, who don't want classlessness. They want their own group on top. But I think most Marxist-Leninists want classlessness. Most Marxists want classlessness, just like most Marxists would like to see an end to misogyny and an end to racism. Um, but they can, they can, Marx also said that tradition of dead generations weighs heavily on, on uh, uh, contemporary revolutionaries. When revolutionaries wanna um, make a new world, they this this tradition weighs heavily on them and that's what i'm saying that that this tradition sort of pushes us to 
espouse our support of it, to not step outside the line too far, which I just did, right? Which to not do that. And it sort of corrals us into creating movements that, you know, the number of working people in the United States who support Donald Trump is what? I don't know, 15, 20 million, some ridiculous number. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not because they have a comprehensive understanding of everything that Trump is going to do, but nonetheless, they support him. What's the number of working people in the United States who support Marxism? That too is not an, uh, what'd you say, a thousand? Some some very small number. You can't just ignore that. Just like you can't ignore the the um what marxism has attained in power you can't ignore the lack of appeal to the audience that it's meant to appeal to or it says it's meant to appeal to something about it doesn't appeal and i go back to that class where i was teaching in the prison and where the you know the mostly black and uh, probably entirely working class and poor students in the class, a lot of them, didn't get excited about owners, but got really agitated about what you're calling the PMC, the coordinator class, and got really upset about that. And and they just, they have this visceral reaction because they experience it directly. And to ignore that, and to even appeal to that sector of people, to even mimic that sector of people, um, is a serious mistake. It's pro- It's why, for example, suppose you looked at, well, if in, in 1950, we looked at left institutions, left publishing houses, left organizing projects, et cetera, et cetera, and we looked inside them, Sadly, but it's true. We would find that um, the the um, the distribution, I, I don't know how to say it, of the role of the black members and the white members were strikingly different. And the white members had the power and the black members did not. And the same thing for, uh, you know, males and women. And it was true, of course, I would say then, but it's also true now. If you look inside left institutions, they their structures, not always, some, some have deviated from this, but often their structures um, mimic the structures of mainstream institutions. Often, for instance, left media institutions have, you know, people who work doing the rote task and they have a fundraiser who if, they ha- who, if the fundraiser knows all the donors and has all the contacts, they have about the same amount of power as somebody who would own the organization. And they have the editorial people and so on. And um, that sector of people runs the organization. It's just like a factory and it's just like a university. And it's just like any other institution you want to name. And it's three classes, not two. And you know, we have to be subtle enough to be able and flexible enough to be able to say that 
and welcome coordinator class members, but not organize in such a way that they dominate. Welcome coordinator class members, but not organize in such a way that we appeal to them, but not to working people and so on. I mean, that's what I'm trying to get across. And uh, I think it's of paramount importance. I mean, there was a question mark at the end of the title of the show. So it wasn't like I, you proposed. An oh, answer. I know. Yeah. You know. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, look, it, you you stayed longer than I thought you were going to stay. Um, oh, I know it's later. I know, I know it's late where you are, so I want to thank oh, you. I, mm-hmm. I'm totally fine, but if it should end now, that's fine. But I'm I'm totally fine. Oh, look at him. He's like, you let know, me cook. You, you wake me up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't speak for my co-host, who also is on the East Coast, uh, the Southeast Coast. and Where are you? The, You're on the West Coast. I am in the West Coast of Mexico in Baja. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah I'm that's still right. I'm still in Mexico. So you're I'm still not, there? Hell yeah. Oh, Great. Honey, I'm not leaving. You Americans. Yeah, it's one of the places I'd sort of like to be. There's only a few places in the world that I'd actually really you, like to be. You're you, in one of them. You're more yeah. than welcome to uh to come down and and visit. Um, <laughs> All right, I've got a friend. Sean Moon says, Albert is just getting started. Let's go another hour. <laughs> Thank I do you, wanna, Sean. I want to ask this this question. Well, actually, uh, we have a super chat. Thank you, David. It, it, you you and David are internet fighting right now. Um, Does the Joint Chiefs of Staff equal coordinator quest? Now, I, 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 don't, I don't know myself how many Joint Chiefs of Staff there are. Let's say there's five of them. No, that's not the coordinator class. Are they members of it? The ones that aren't capitalists, I don't know whether any of them are capitalists. Yes, they're members of it. Um, sure. One last question, and then we can we can call it. So we're, we're definitely Our going show. to the champagne room after this. Also, if you're listening on the audio-only podcast on Apple, if you want to get access to the champagne room, have access to champagne rooms past and present, all you have to do is sign up, and that access is yours. Mr. Michael Albert, why do you think certain regimes, especially in the global south, that purport to have been Marxists, devolved into right-wing dictatorships? Um, in the United States, I'll get to the question, but in the United States, in the, in the, the swing from, I don't know, over a period of say 40 years, there were a lot of leftists mm-hmm. who became rightists. And um, one explanation, I mean, there's probably lots of factors, right? Mm-hmm. But one explanation is that there's a part of it that's similar. So in other words, if your leftism is rooted in um, uh, authority is is fundamentalist um, is relating to a body of work as a kind of Bible, and if it's celebrating um, some leaders as you know all powerful, it's not that big a jump. Um, it really isn't, and you know you could. I think that's part of an explanation. There are other kinds of explanations. So, for example. Um, 
a leftist goes to Cuba and, you know, on a trip to try and learn and understand in, uh, you know, I don't know, 20 years ago, whenever, and um, comes back and criticizes Cuba a bit ham-handedly also and gets raked over the coals and becomes a rightist in reaction. That shouldn't happen because it's not an interpersonal irritation being left or right, you know, wanting a better world, but nonetheless, it does happen. Or back in the 1960s, a leftist criticizes the Black Panthers very aggressively and gets ripped ricked over the coal mm-hmm. uh, over the coals you know gets attacked for doing so and becomes a rightist i won't name the first one but mm-hmm. the second one was horowitz you know who wrote a very good left book uh uh about imperialism and was a key figure in ramparts which was an incredibly important left institution and then he became a right-wing you know, terrible. Uh, so that transition is possible. Now, on the question, the question was, in the th- in the in the global South, what was it again? How, in the what? Why had why did a lot of those regimes kind of devolve into dictatorships? Uh, because they Mafia, because Ethiopia. what what is what because inside Leninism, mm-hmm. you can be a a liber- you can want. Uh, power management control of society to rest in the hands of the people of the working class of the population etc etc but on the road to that you want a dictatorship of the proletariat which takes the form of a dictatorship of a party which then can take the form of the dictatorship of a dictator Mm -hmm. and if you're in that kind of a process why would it be hard Especially if you started to under, you know, all kinds of personal pressure and and just who knows what all, right? If you started to use the power to enhance yourself. So now right wing, left wing, why does that person give a shit, right? They, they just want the power and they want to use it. It's not, I don't think it's, it's impossible to understand. The question is, can you have a framework, an intellectual framework, whose concepts, who, who point you at things, who, who cause you to see things and to react to things in such a way that that transition isn't possible? That that transition, um, you just, you're just no longer capable of thinking that way. There's another version of this. Back in uh, 69, 70, you know, when the police were infiltrating institutions. And some of us said, look, of course, we should criticize this phenomenon. But we ought to pay attention to the fact that some organizations can be infiltrated and others can't. Mm. Some organizations, the cop can come into the organization and fit in and mimic the culture of the organization almost overnight. And other organizations, the cop finds it almost impossible or even impossible to not stand out, to not stick out. You know what I mean? And that's a similar kind of question, I think. Um, 
the point is sometimes left institutions have attributes and characteristics which can turn to the right and other times they don't uh, and we ought to figure out the difference and go for the latter and the same thing with ideologies we ought to be able to distinguish between an ideology or at least the parts of the ideology that cause the emergence of a new hierarchy a new boss taking the place of the old boss right um and eradicate that part and if we eradicate that part if we eradicate the economism and if we eradicate the hiding of the danger of the of a third class becoming the ruling class is what's left marxism well it is if you call it marxism but but does it make sense i don't know you know i i don't know this is like the argument over socialism do you call yourself a socialism or not this used to be a big argument mm -hmm. and the people saying yes wanted to be most often they wanted to be part of the tradition i said to myself what tradition is that is that the tradition of the countries that call themselves socialist and I think are horrendous? Is, is that what the tradition is that I want to, right? <laughs> this was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, others would say, um, we need a new word because that word doesn't connote what we mean. And we can't just redefine it and have anybody believe us. We have to say something different. That, then along came Bernie Sanders. and somehow i still don't get it he managed to make socialism no longer a dirty word and it no longer connotes what it connoted in other words it used to connote dictatorship the gulag etc etc and you had to fight against that to mm -hmm. keep the word sanders changed it and so it connotes i'm not sure it doesn't connote what I mean by socialism, right? It doesn't connote, but it does connote, huh? What? The New Deal in some people's mind now. Yeah, yeah. It, it connotes that, and I certainly am for something different than that ultimately, but I'm not against that, and, you know, you can get that tomorrow, get it. But um, it's, it's going to be the same someday, I think with the word marxism and marxism leninism certainly marxism leninism already probably the same it's it's people are moving beyond it whether they admit they're moving beyond it or not and at some point i don't think it's going to change its meaning i you know whereas i don't i think marxism leninism will always connote the soviet union um and all the rest of it marxism maybe somebody like Sanders will come along or a group will come along and it will change. It, it, you know, it won't connote economism um, uh, catering to the PMC, if you will, um, just like liberals do. I mean, when, when the right wing hates the Democratic Party and everybody sort of gets uptight, I say, well, of course they do. Why shouldn't they? Right? They might they might be wise, they would be wise to vote for it instead of Trump. You don't want a maniac, but of course they hate it. They should hate it. But the reason that they hate it, right, isn't because it's a bourgeois party that's part of capitalism. The reason that they hate it, I think, is because 
like Hillary Clinton, it, it is intellectually elitist and it treats people like children, uh, working class people. And so they're right in that. Um, and they think that Trump agrees with them. They think Trump is upset by that too. And he makes believe he is. It works. Well, <clears throat> we usually we do this show an hour. So I just want you we, thank you, Mercutio, okay. for the super chat. This episode is swinging for the best of this year's best of so far. I look, look. <laughs> what? I, Applause was perfect. Oh, now the applause is perfect. Now I like the applause. Now, now it's okay. Okay. You, you, you know what? What the problem is, uh, Michael? I'm going to call you Michael, not even Mike. M Dog. Well, okay, right. M A. No. The problem is you don't have one of these illustrious soundboards, and you're jealous. This is all it is. This is petty. Jealousy. I tried to keep it from you. I and tried to make it seem like I was super to... smart. No, super no, smart. No, it's just Seeing jealousy. the problem with the with the... you got me. There it is. That's all it is. <laughs> Pascal Robert, do you have any closing remarks? I'd like to say that the chat has been rather, rather <laughs> interesting this evening. There's someone in the chat that's going off about Stalin. There's people mad. This, this this is the this should be the greatest commercial to I, watch the show live. I, I I could spend all night responding to the chat. See, it doesn't bother me. I would like. Yeah, to we don't want to do that. We 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 have done that. <laughs> we started this show. I'll I'll be brief. When we started this show, we used to put the chat on the screen because I thought it was so cool. Oh, they, they don't see it. I see it. Uh, we yeah they see it when they watch YouTube they see it right or whatever they're watching the okay. show on they see it but we used to put okay. it on the screen so anyone could see it so the guest would see it and we did a show okay. about 16 19 and 17 76 we couldn't even get the show off the ground <laughs> there was two shows we did Pascal do you remember it was that show and we did a show with this woman that left academia soon after the show it wasn't our fault it was yeah. our own choice yep. <laughs> but but um we did a show about um ADOS I think. Yes. Adolf Reed, you mean? No, no, ADOS. ADOS. ADOS is about the the online movement of black nativism. Yeah. And it it just derailed. And we found that shows were getting totally derailed because guests and us would pay so much attention that we would be responding back to people in real time. So when you listen to the audio of the show, you don't see any of this when you listen to the audio. And you're like, what? That sounds crazy, so we we made the executive decision to not have the chat on the screen for the main show. And in our patron only second half of the show, we have the chat on the screen because it's more of a friendly vibe. It's a little more fun. Um, I see. I see. You, you know, so is there a text? Uh-huh. Is there a text of the chat? I could probably find. Oh, you want me to? If I can find it, I'll send it to you. <laughs> Absolutely, I would like to see it. Uh, I'll I'll do a podcast in which I say, "So and so says," asks, and I'll answer it. 
You know what? I, can I ask this question of you while I have you on you air? You can ask anything you want. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't fuck with me. <laughs> you can. You are fucking with the wrong guy to ask no, that question. Uh, you can ask anything you want. Can we I didn't say I'd answer anything. <laughs> <laughs> can we bring you back at some point yeah. for an Ask Michael Albert Anything? And I'll open up the phone lines. Sure. I, do you think people would do it? Uh, yeah, Fuck I'd yeah. absolutely do it. Fuck yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to do it. Pascal, if we did an oh, Ask I Michael Albert you, Anything. I guarantee you we'll call in. <laughs> That's how we should kick off Black History Month. Ask Michael Albert anything from Black History. <laughs> no, I, wait a second. Uh, wait, that's not a good idea. That is a great idea. <laughs> no, that's not a good idea because I don't know enough. Um, no, and I, it's not my place. No, we didn't say you got to answer Black questions. You just got to answer all the questions on Black History Month. We'll have oh. a real black person there to answer any black questions. <laughs> uh, uh, you got a vote over here. <laughs> we'll have we'll have uh, Coleman uh, Hughes to answer any black questions. <laughs> You've got. I'll tell you this. I mean, you guys don't like your, or at least you have some kind of you know operational yeah. problem. But mm -hmm. you've got people who are. Very clever, yes. Very funny, yes. And often asking good questions. And out of the, I usually get asked the same questions over and over again, right? They're not mm -hmm. doing that. Um, they have a very good audience. It it is. It's, this, this, uh, this is this is. Somebody what? just asked what upset what upsets Michael about Thomas Piketty the most. What? I mean, no, what? <laughs> Nobody ever asked me a question, even remotely. Because he's, like he's fucking French. <laughs> that's, that's, Next that's question. That's not a bad answer. That's not a bad answer. <laughs> you know, he wrote a book. I'm pretty sure he wrote a book that is titled Participatory Socialism. One of his newest, or he refers to. What he's at, not a book, but he refers to it as participatory socialism. And that's what Robin and I call the thing that we favor. So when when we saw that, we thought, what the fuck? You know, he's come around and he sees things differently and he's advocating what we're advocating. And then we looked and not quite. Uh, <laughs> um, it's it's it, the chat. Dude, this show, you know, it's what I, it's the only thing I have as far as employment. It, I love doing this show with all my heart. Um, I love reading the comments. I definitely love the champagne room because that's where all the jokes and the characters. What is this champagne room shit? What, what, <laughs> you have me on it as a guest? What do I get to do? Where's my champagne? <laughs> Can you imagine Michael Albert in the champagne room with Pog Chaser MLK and all the other characters? Oh, in the God. <laughs> what goes on? What the hell? <laughs> We've created a few characters on this show of some famous left figures. Yeah. Um, and they definitely exist in the champagne room, and there's a lot of inside jokes. 
Um, one of the more popular characters is uh, Pog Chaser MLK. Pog you, Chaser MLK? Pog. P-A-W-G. Pog. Fat-ass white girl chaser MLK. <laughs> I didn't know about that one until now. And then there's, yeah, Pascal missed out on also anti-racist, racist, slick Rick. <laughs> <laughs> is he the, the, the he can't stop he just it's just it's just we, talk, we, we do a malcolm x and imper- not malcolm a martin luther king impersonation where he just talks about white women oh, it's pretty uh-oh. it's it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun um, and, and how do you get into the champ not that i'm asking but how uh-huh. do people get into the champagne room because i i'm wondering why people haven't come in there with a tape recorder and then and then gone out and attacked people. How do you prevent that? Or did I just give people it's, a bad idea? It's all fun. It. Usually it's all fun. Sometimes we'll continue the conversation from the first hour, but generally we'll open up phone lines more in the champagne room. We definitely have a oh, lot yeah, of fun. We, yeah, we, we, we watch videos and they're usually silly videos and we critique said videos. Um, <laughs> If you if you have more fun, yeah. If you have more fun, you in particular have more fun. I would think you would need an emergency room at the end of it. Someone says the champagne room is just fodder for TIR's host right wing heel turn. I didn't. So w- when we originally went back and forth in email, I'm going to put you on blast on the main show. You're like, oh, that's late. And I was like, yeah. So I didn't even bother to send you a champagne room invite. Um, I didn't even send one to you, Pascal, did I? I did. Huh? did. Okay. Look at you mad. Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> the way you fucking said that. <laughs> Al, there's, a, there's a comment over here. Albert drives a 350 Lexus RX. I would What's assume you were more Lexus RX. <laughs> See, what's Michael, wrong Albert, Michael Albert drives a 95 Impala. <laughs> now you want the truth? Michael Albert, Michael Albert no longer drives. His eyes aren't good enough. Oh but when damn! When he did drive, uh-huh. when he did drive. He drove, now I gotta remember, the, an Anglia. This was when I was a kid. It's a European, really cheap car. It's like a Peugeot. Well below a Volkswagen, no, way below a Volkswagen, which in those days was. And uh, my parents got me a Corvair when I was in college. Um, n- not something that most people have. Um, and it was real good bait for theft, right? And I was living in uh, in a little apartment in uh, Harvard Square, Cambridge, <laughs> and there was a small parking lot behind it where I put the car. And thieves got rid- wind of it and would steal it regularly to joyride, and they'd bring it back. <laughs> what? The and I, I'm not kidding. This is a true story. 
and I would put a note on the car. I need the car early tomorrow morning. <laughs> Please get it back early or don't take it tonight. And they didn't take it when I put the note. Somebody wrote in the comments, God damn, what was the last time you drove? <laughs> He's naming cars what? To learn to fix my I'm gonna have to learn to fix my No Lada? No. Oh shit. Well, he named cars that don't exist anymore. I'm seventy-six, folks. I'm I'm not a spring chicken. I'm I'm seventy-six. I was around when most of you didn't exist. Oh my god. Uh, Pascal. What was your first car? Honda Civic. What year? I need to know what year. I mean, what year was the car? What year did I get the car? (laughs) Both. The car was in 1974. I got the car in 1974. They made Hondas back then? Yeah, really? I didn't know that either. Yeah, I think your daddy fucking... (laughs) I think you, I think you had a chop shop mobile. Yeah, yeah it's on the Civic. <laughs> yeah, four, sure it is. Four on the floor. <laughs> was it a standard stick shift or was it three on the collar? Standard four on the floor. <laughs> Kushlik says, "Looks yeah, a Corvair." That's some kind of 1960s James Bond car. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! My first car was a 1981 Volvo. Volvo's a good car. It was. It, I car. loved that car. It's a good car. Um, In the comments, tell us what was your first car that you bought or stole, or were you a person that stole Michael Albert's car? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If the thief is listening, thank you very much for <laughs> not disrupting the days when I needed the car. Someone said Pascal drove a Japanese World War II surplus. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. So this is what happens in the champagne room, for those that don't know. It's usually this kind of banter and a lot of lying. Somebody said Jason's trying to get our password reset questions. <laughs> Look at this. The the whole thing is. <laughs> My first car was an 82 Pinto. God damn. Someone says an 08 Nissan Altima. When people say shit like that, that's how you know how young they are. Albert drove Boer War Surplus. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. Oh. You know what's funny? I'm on the email thread for when when Michael Albert proposed this essay as a podcast and all the responses were all these like dignified responses and uh I sent an email say, "Hey, you want to come on the show?" He's like, "Oh yeah, sure, I'll come on the show." And as the show has devolved into Pog Chase okay, <laughs> and <laughs> the kind of car Michael Albert doesn't have, <laughs> I can't believe. <laughs> I can't wait to see the email that you send out about this. <laughs> hey, guys, what show not to go on? 
Oh, no, I would. Uh, that's not the case. I would definitely recommend people to go on this show. Right? You think I've been on a lot of shows, mm -hmm. done a lot of interviews. Mm -hmm. Why would this not be the most fun one? I think it's obviously so. the most Tell fun me. one. I think so. It's the most fun one that I've been on, and uh, and also the content. So it's got content and humor. What more can you ask for? <laughs> pay, pay. How come you aren't paying me? <laughs> oh, but there is the free champagne, right? There's look. <laughs> there's free champagne in the champagne room, and. This, look, I'm having fun. This is I want you guys to realize this is all free champagne right now. We're still <laughs> going to go to because Tucson is waiting for us in the champagne room. Uh, Pascal, are you are you going to knock off because it's late now? I'm going I was going to go into the champagne room. I'm waiting to go into the. Champagne oh, you room. are just you are just patiently waiting to talk more shit is what you're saying. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Okay, I'm now I'm scared to go <laughs> now. I feel like going to one of them clubs where Puffy shoots it up at the end of the night. Like, god damn, don't, don't mention Puffy now. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us for this extended free show. Thank you so much to Michael Albert, who I really only Thank thought you. was going to hang out for a short amount of time. So I appreciate your candor. I appreciate you having fun and interacting with the chat. I'm sure the chat, even people that disagree with some of the things you have to say, have to appreciate you uh, spending your time to hang out with us tonight. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Um, and mm -hmm. All right, I got it. What is SOAS? I don't know. What is that? SOAS? It's a British British school of uh, social anthropology or something like that. <laughs> Who said that? Oh, Gene Bosman. Somebody said. Somebody said. Do you do you? Oh, lecture do you lecture at SOAS? Yeah. What the hell is SOAS? <laughs> oh, the British school of anthropology. What the hell? Is he? I don't. I don't know any of the, you know every other every fifth or sixth. I don't. I don't know. Has, a, um, has an acronym in it, and I don't know what the hell it is. Yeah, I don't know. Sorry, old right, ass. Anyway, I don't know what it is. School of <laughs> oh, here's School of Oriental and African Studies in England. Is that what? That's it where is? Gene. That's where Gene Bajla went. He did his undergrad. Well, that must there. be what SOAS is. Yeah. I so apparently, no, is. he doesn't lecture there. No. <laughs> uh, I'd like to be invited, but I don't lecture there. All right. Anyway, I I feel like I'm keeping you now. Um, no, 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 no. <clears throat> um, so, but, but you're just you. being courteous and not saying get the hell out of here already. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm literally shocked. I, I never. Every time we go on air, I never know what to expect from the audience. <laughs> Either they're really engaged or they could give a shit else less. And <clears throat> we, we kind of don't talk about the standard things that people in this universe talk about all the time. Um, so the well, fact that we had this discussion, the fact that people were so engaged. The fact that we got to have a debate with the chat. This is a perfect show. So the, the question everything. was serious. Apparently, there's a Michael Albert who, who lectures there. Oh, that's the imposter. There, there is a uh, Michael Albert in someplace in the UK, and he is a leftist, but I've never met him. 
Maybe you should fight for the well, name. That's what it is. I think you should fight for the fight name. over the name. Yeah, yes. I, 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 the important thing to fight about. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Look, there can be only one. Look at him. They, hey, I can't have you sully my name, fake Michael Albert. You limey bastard. You beans for breakfast eating son of a bitch. You are not going to take my name. Take I that. can imagine what goes on in your champagne. Room. <laughs> <laughs> if I could do as well as a stand-up comedian in the world as I can do with you, thank I'd be you. Bigger than what's her name? What's oh, her she... name the... <laughs> uh, who's this woman comedian? I don't know. No, the singer. You know the oh the Taylor woman Swift, Britney Spears, Britney yeah. Swift. Yeah. If I could be a stand-up comedian for everybody and get as much laughs as I get from you, I'd hey. be bigger than, 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 than what's her name? Michael Albert, what are the leftist Beyonce. There you go. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. Uh, all right. Thank you. Have a good night, everybody. Thank you. We really, thank you. are out.